Ali Amagasu. I am not doing the intro. I'm already sick of doing the intro because I've been doing so many podcasts from from KubeCon. Anyway, it is afternoon on Wednesday, and I'm really excited to be sitting down with Lita Cho of Lyft. Welcome, Lita. Thank you. It's great to be here. And we have a surprise uh, visitor today. I thought I'd be doing all of these solo. Uh, because of technology constraints. We really don't have a very fancy rig here. Uh, and I didn't think I'd be able to connect with Pete over wireless, but we, we got our hands on an ethernet cable and Pete's joining me today. So after six months of this, I'm a surprise now. That's not <laughs> <laughs> you, I've kind of, I think I warned people in the previous episode that this was oh. all they were getting for the next few episodes. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you stepped in, man. Thank you. I know it's later in Michigan. It is, uh, but it, it's always worth, it's worth a late hour to have a good conversation. And while I'm thanking people, I don't know if you know Gary Kevorkian. He runs all Cisco's events, and uh, oh. well, not all of them, but a significant number of them. And shout out to Gary. If you listen to this, Gary, thank you so much. I materialized this morning and said, man, I need an Ethernet cable. Oh. And you know, usually if you want to get one of those from the uh, companies running the show, they're going to rent it to you for like $100 for the oh day or something. Gosh. But Gary was like, he vanished for a few minutes. He said, where are you? Instead of scolding me and saying, why don't you have your own Ethernet cable, Allie? Didn't you know you were going to be doing this? He just said, where are you? And how long do you need it to be? Vanished, came back like three minutes later with an Ethernet cable. So what well, a kind of it, It's Cisco though, right? So like most people, they're, most Cisco employees, I think are born with an Ethernet cable. <laughs> right, this is probably so. Gary's umbilical cord and I need to give it back to him later. That's awesome. Anyway. Lita, um, we know you gave a talk earlier today, yeah, and the that's right. abstract from that talk, you know, got my interest. It sounded cool. You work for Lyft, um, so I was. We were just talking about some of the neat stuff you guys do. I have been lifting all over this neighborhood for the past few days. That's great to hear. Yes, yes, they've been terrific. Um, and you gave a talk about evolving legacy systems into Kubernetes and yes. what you guys did. So, why don't you start start off by telling me how are you guys doing things before? Four, and and what made you reach a point where you said, you know what, we need to evolve? Yeah, uh, so that's a great question. Yeah, because that's actually perfect because that's how I started off my talk. It's like why we decided to do this because migrations are very expensive and it takes a lot of engineering hours and it also like hinders us from doing feature work because at the end of the day, we engineers, we love to ship features and make forward progress. So like yeah, sending us some time to like, pause and migrate to something, a whole new infrastructure is very time consuming and very risky. So the, I broke it up into three parts. So like one part is the fact that we, our old legacy system, because of how we, our orchestrator, our old orchestrator, which was Salt, uh, we, it took us like 20 minutes to spin up a, a new uh, box, a new EC2 instance. And so scaling up was like, took a long time. and. Previ uh, previously in our old legacy infrastructure, we what we ended up doing to handle bursty traffic because Lyft has bursty traffic, uh, especially during times where like bar closes or like during times where like um, what is like what is a, a big event and everyone wants to go home like like, like a concert here. yeah or like here <laughs> like at a conference yeah we get a surge of traffic and. And and that and that's like and we and it's a very real time system, right? Like we were there's a lot of cars going around and like a lot of requests happening all in real time. And they and if our systems is not responsive fast enough, they'll switch to another competitor, right? So we have to make sure that uh, we are serving traffic quickly and um, and reliably. And so 
the way we handled these bursty traffic before it was to over provision. Like we would just like, we're going to spin up a, a thousands of boxes or like hundreds of thousands of boxes so that we could handle that burst of traffic, but like only to handle that small moment of time. And then those boxes are not doing anything for like the rest of the time. So it's not very effective. It's not a great use of resources. So that's one reason why we wanted to switch to Kubernetes because like the orchestrator is better managing resources and through containers, you could spin up pods way faster and effectively use the uh, the nodes uh, that all so that all the CPU and memory is using is being used. Secondly, is also to separate concerns. So, like in the legacy infrastructure, product owners had to care about the uh, the orchestration code and the configuration code in their service. They all shared in the same repo, and they also had to manage their own EC2 like ASG cluster. So, like. All the so there's a lot of infrastructure like processes running like the Envoy Star Card Mesh, which is a, a which is a proxy that's run on every single box, and that abstracts our network traffic, and that's run as a separate process. But the service owners had to like like manage that, and like so if like for some reason something went wrong in that process, they have to handle it, and it's just a big context switch. Like they just really want to manage their own application and and. Uh, and hand, like just think about business logic. They don't want to like, and the fact that they had to switch contexts and like relearn this configuration system, and then like, and then relearn like what, how Envoy works and like how does it like, and then debug it. That's not a great story. It takes a lot of cognitive load, and ultimately, it's like not a, the greatest effective use of a product engineer's time. So with Kubernetes and containers, you can separate the infrastructure part out to a separate container that all of the infrastructure engineers manage. And so that they, we could deploy it out to all the containers separately, while the application engineer has their own little world that just runs, own little container that runs their application. It's a very simple setup. And and the, we like in, in our new Kubernetes world, we simplify the configuration so that they just need to think about, uh, what is it, CPU and memory. They don't have to think about like, which AC, which AS, what instance type should I use? Should I use this or that? Like. Like it's not a great uh, like or like how should I like what do I need to what do I need to like start up my box like they should not have to worry about that they should just have to worry about hey I think my my application just requires this much CPU and this much memory and then here's my scale like here's my scale up policy like if if it goes below above eighty percent CPU please give me more uh, resources and that's and that's what Kubernetes offers so that's like another big selling point that we wanted to migrate over is like. We could separate the infrastructure load off of the uh, product engineer and onto uh, uh, onto a separate um, container, and like and we can manage that on our own. The last reason why we migrated over was due to immutable immutable infrastructure. So in the sense that like right now we do when we deploy uh, a new code change, we do an upgrade in place, mostly because like uh, for the previous reason of uh, of the fact that it takes so long to orchestrate and spin up a new box. And so it, it takes again like twenty minutes in our old, old system. So like to do a to rotate an ASG is very time consuming. It would take an hours. So and we want we wanted to optimize for agility and like shipping fast and rolling back fast. So that's why we do upgrades in place. But the downsides to that is the fact that your scale up how your your how your uh, box scales up is different, like can be different than how you initially deploy. So like you could be in a bad situation where you deploy, you deployed a change and it was fine the initial deploy, but then as the, your your ASG tries to scale up, 
it does it can't it, like you like misconfigure something and then now you're in a scary situation where you can't handle your load so and with kubernetes that that gets uh, solved because your uh, due to immutable infra um, the immutable infrastructure your first initial deploy will always be how it gets deployed. So your initial rollout will be the same as you, when you scale up. And that's a very powerful concept and allows for a lot of assumptions and less cognitive load. Whose idea was it? Who, was there somebody within your organization that was driving and was like, this is the way we need to go? Uh, it was like a collective. Like, I, I mean, initially started with like the, some people in the provisioning team, like saying like, there's a great community here. And like, uh, I think Kubernetes could solve like a lot of, a lot of these problems. Uh, and there's many ways to solve these problems. There's definitely different ways to solve it, but we, I think, Lyft chose Kubernetes because of the community and the fact that like so, uh, there, there's a lot of other people in the industry moving towards Kubernetes. So like, like it's, I I feel like it was a, sure it started off with a, a couple of engineers in the infrastructure team, but then it as we started prototyping it out, investing more, talking to more people, it feels it felt like this was the right decision. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, any questions after uh, Lita laid it out there about how they got Yeah, it? so let me, I guess, let me reiterate, make sure I understand. So the three parts were the old legacy system was taking too long for you guys to scale and it was causing you to over-provision. So mm -hmm. not only, not only you, it sounds like you kind of vacillated between having situations where you couldn't spin up quickly enough and other situations where you were spending more than you had to. Yeah. Before, before you could do that. And that over-provisioning story, you couldn't see me smiling the whole time because when Bill Clinton was president of the United States and I was still working for HP, I once spent a million dollars extra on hardware so that I didn't get fired when the HP.com website didn't handle the load after you know some big ad buy that we'd made. Because nobody oh. nobody ever gets fired for buying too much hardware. You only get fired <laughs> if, you know, if your infrastructure can't handle whatever load marketing tries to put on it. So I was... I was smiling at that. So you had that over-provisioning, you know, slash timeliness of scale problem was what was number one. Number two, you had this separation of concerns where your your app or your service teams just wanted to build their apps and their services and they didn't want to care about the network and they didn't want to care about scale-up policies and that kind of stuff. And now you can manage all that stuff collectively. Did I get that one right? Yeah, that is correct. And then the third one is this idea of this immutable infrastructure where you can do these upgrades in place. So I guess collectively, if I've got those three things right, I guess my first question is, now that you're through, you know, now that you're at the other side of the tunnel, are you seeing better iteration throughput? Are you seeing more iterations per year or per quarter than you were before because, because now your, your app and service teams have so much less that they have to worry about? Yeah, like we're still in the middle of our migration. So oh, it, okay. yeah, so it's like not fully complete, but like, we, I feel like that's the goal, right? Like right now we're in this hybrid world where like you have some of your uh, application in Kubernetes and half of it is in, in uh, the old legacy systems. And we want to do that purposely because like we, we don't have the luxury of doing uh, maintenance mode where we're like, okay, pause. Like we can't serve Lyft anymore. We're going to move everything over and then start up. That's like not sure. possible. No. So <laughs> if I have to wait like more than three, you know, a couple minutes. Yeah. Know, I'm like, what is going on? We've got, it has made us so spoiled. I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. So like we, it was very important for us that like we were able to live in this hybrid world and and then migrate over at the pace that we feel comfortable with it. Um, like, like it, because the most, 
important thing is like reliability and making sure that end user does not notice any of this. And then secondly, it was like, yeah. And, um, and that was like the other half of my talk was like, that how do you like hold this hybrid environment as you migrate over to Kubernetes and like, like, and, and still like, cert, like, make it transparent to both the product engineer and the end user. Okay, how? Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, so the, the big message of my talk, I think, was um, we lever, like, so there's many portions of a Kubernetes migration. My talk was mostly focused on the networking side of it and the service discovery portion. And so what we did was we leveraged our service mesh. So we migrated to Envoy and the service mesh pretty early on, and now we're, like, benefiting a lot from it. And what the architecture, architecture diagram I drew was the fact that we're getting discovery data from the, like the old legacy systems, like the, the way that we did before, but also in the Kubernetes clusters, they have these Kubernetes API servers per cluster, and they maintain the state of the cluster. They're like, how what pods are there? Are they spinning down, spinning back up? What's the state of them? And they're sending IP addresses directly to our um, control plane are the, the thing that like keeps track of all the IP addresses out there per service. And then they and then we munge that data together like into Envoy like configuration data and send that out to all the sidecars. And the fact that every single application is running Envoy on uh, and all traffic goes through Envoy, we and when we have that abstraction later, we're able to do this. We're like at the end of the day, the product can engineer can send a request and, and they'll get a response and they don't care where it's coming. If it's coming from a legacy server, uh, legacy service or a Kubernetes service, that's all transparent to them. And and that way we and, and due to the fact that Envoy gives us these like fine grained controls, we can load balance like we can load balance uh, as much traffic as we want to Kubernetes versus the legacy API. And so we could do it in a safe way where we're like, okay, we're gonna slowly ramp traffic over here. And then let's say like like let's say somebody like rolls out a bad uh, Kubernetes like upgrade, we can also then like quickly strip traffic back to our legacy clusters, or our legacy infrastructure, and we can also like fail health checks so that yeah, so that we could so that no no Kubernetes uh, clusters getting any network traffic. So like that's the power of the service mesh is that we we have all these fine grained controls so we could safely do this and like uh, roll out this change in place as we're still running our uh, service, our yeah, system. So the old VM-based system was using Envoy for service discovery even before you yes. made the choice to go to Kubernetes? That is correct. Yeah, that had to have made that a lot easier then for mm -hmm. all the reasons. Because then if that's your control point in, in you, you fulfill the service discovery requests through Envoy and then can make the decision as to whether you fulfill that on the legacy system or the new one. That's got to be a huge, huge advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we are paying, the, we are getting the dividends now for like do, deciding that early on. Like we migrate, I mean, Envoy, like, so Lyft, like my, uh, what is it, Techly, Matt Klein, he created Envoy, uh, codifying all his operational knowledge into this proxy and like, and it's like a very powerful tool to it handles all the network specific things so that application engineers don't have to like retry policies, circuit breaking, all of that is codified in there. Right. And and the fact that we, we yeah we have a common like service mesh for um, all our applications, we could yeah we could do these migrations like we can now do these really big like migrations like moving over to Kubernetes in a safe way as a mid-sized company. That's which is pretty awesome. 
So it sounds like pri prior, so one advantage you guys had, it sounds like, it, it, if you were using Envoy before, you, you're, it sounds like your architecture was pretty microservice-like, even though the infrastructure implementation of it was VM-based. Is that fair to say what you, that was your your before picture looked like? Yeah, we were, yeah, exactly. Like we moved, like we moved to a microservice architecture, like like I want, we started moving towards a microservice architecture, like a couple, uh, like two years ago. Um, okay. and, and we, and we rolled out the service mesh early on when we had like 10 microservices at the time. Sure. And so, but now we have like a lot, we have like 200 services. Well, yeah. The network yeah. effect of that is staggering. Right? Yeah. If you, Absolutely. If each service has to manage all 200 connections to all the other services, that just, your head explodes doing that really quickly. Yeah. But, so it sounds like you you had some some legacy infrastructure. You went to a more microservice description, or a microservices implementation, even though it was on top of our microservices design that was on top of VMs yep. that then included Envoy, and then that made it easier for you to to get to Kubernetes so that you could take advantage of the you know seconds instead of minutes spin up of new units of compute. The, Mutable infrastructure and the separation of concerns that you were talking about. That is correct. Yep. It's interesting. Very cool. I don't think of, um, I mean, Lyft is a young company, right? Yeah. And yeah. so when you say legacy infrastructure, I mean, that sounds like a different company to me. That sounds like an, you know, an old company with, you know, yeah. old servers and, and really old software that, that may not even be something that you can, you know, lift and shift. Yeah. I mean, that's mostly because I feel like, um, I feel like with hyper growth, like, things get old very fast. And so, but the thing is, I don't think we, agility is the most important thing. I, and so I don't think we would have the, without microservices, I don't think we could have tried all these different things. And you wanna give product owners, like the ownership to do what they need to do without like coordinating or like, you know, stopping over, doing risky changes or like be, being able to be blocked because like, oh, your chain's gonna affect like the golden path. So uh, I think microservices allowed us to do that. and. I think like, um, and I think like now that we're like we've adopted fully into the microservice architecture, now we're going to the second phase of like, okay, how do we like sc like scale scale uh, quickly these the these microservices? And I think Kubernetes is like the next stage of that. Right, right. Are you guys using any other or incorporating any other CNCF projects? You've mentioned. Envoy you know, is the biggest one. Envoy. Yeah, okay. Envoy is a CNCF project. Yeah, we, I think, so Lyft donated Envoy to CNCF, and like now it's pretty awesome to see like other companies using Envoy as well. And and after seeing what Lyft done, with, like getting all the benefits that Lyft has with the service mesh, it's really cool to see other companies also adopting the service mesh as well. And there's a whole slew of companies that are like that were listed in the keynote mm -hmm. uh, of all these companies migrating over and having success with it and using it in their own way, which is really awesome. That's really neat. So you said Matt Klein? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I think Dan mentioned his name when I said, who should I talk to when I'm at? Oh, <laughs> yeah. You should definitely talk to Matt. Said, oh, you should talk to Matt Klein. Yeah. Um, he's really great at being at podcasts. I really like hearing him talk oh, yeah. about Yeah. Yeah. I think he's really good at explaining his thoughts on the industry and where it's going and like, and, um, and just more like how he, like, and like the origin story of like Envoy and how why he he like built it, it's very fascinating. So do you have a lot of you're you're with the infrastructure side, right? Yeah. So, but as I say, do you have a lot of Kubernetes contributors at your company outside of Matt, or do you? Oh, uh, Kubernetes contributors. Um, I don't think we have a lot of Kubernetes contributors directly, but I do know we have a lot of people. Who, we we are just hiring a lot of people that have Kubernetes experience because 
I mean, I've been in Lyft for a long time. I've been in Lyft for like four years. And I don't, like, I recently started to look into Kubernetes because we started migrating over, like, in the past year. Yeah. But um, it's been great to see, like, but we do have people who have used Kubernetes and who have, who have um, operated Kubernetes at a much larger scale. Like, Vicky, who's, like, the manage, who's, like, the provisioning manager, she's, Managed like Kubernetes clusters at OpenAI, and like it, and they've and she's seen Kubernetes at scale, like at the biggest scale that I've never seen. So it's like really great that we have expert experts at our company running these clusters, helping us migrate. Pete, other questions? No, I was just um, the, the 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 thing that hit me that you, you just a couple of things you just said, Lita, that the 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 hyperscale of the change and and just the, the velocity of the change. You, you you just said a minute ago, so I'm I'm much much older than you are as my hairline <laughs> betrayed. Um, you just said I've been at Lyft a long time. I've been there four years. <laughs> I know. And the thing that struck me about that is because you've got microservice based architecture, you've probably done more releases in four years at Lyft than I did in seventeen years at HPIT because it you know. Back in the old days when we walked, you know, uphill through the snow to school to, <laughs> you know, you were lucky if you got four releases a year. I, I'm interested oh. in, and then that's why I asked the question about what your iteration throughput is like. And then I know you're in this, in this interim stage, but how, you know, how, how frequent are your service teams doing, doing releases? Are they doing a release at the end of every two week sprint? Do they save them up for the oh. end of the month? We, like, or I mean, you guys, is, if you don't do a release every hour, do, do people start getting upset? I just want to get a sense for the scale. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, we do. I feel like we do like 200 deploys a day. Like, wow. Yeah. That's a, but that's across all the different service and application teams, yep, right? That's that is correct. Yeah. I mean, the networking team does like a deploy twice a week. Like, yeah, but mostly do, exactly. yeah, but that, that's so like, is that, so is that typical of one of the individual service teams that if I'm a service team, I might do twice no, a week? No, I, I, can't, I can't even, because all the teams are so different and how they operate. Like, I can't give like a canonical, like, this is a normal sure. team, deploys <laughs> X. Like, but is there a range? I mean, is there a range? Do some of them, do some of them wait for sprint ends and other ones just like do it daily, regardless of what's, what's in I, this what's in the source repo? Or, I think people deploy like, as much as they can, like in the backend services, like I think the client, like the mobile apps, they they deploy like once a like they have a release every week. But like backend services, like they it's like very so varied, like it's like wildly different. And like and I think they just optimize for deploying as much as they can. Okay, sure, and and that completely makes sense. So yeah. just to put some metrics around this, you got a couple hundred services. Some of them are doing are doing deployments daily or weekly. It depends on on individual teams and yeah. sort of the scope of their problems are. Yeah. Um, just to kind of get some more head around metrics. I mean, are you guys pretty religious about two pizza teams, or how many people are typically involved in a service team like that? It's a two pizza team. Two, pizza, two pizza team is the number of people that number of people are on a team that you can feed with two pizzas. So oh, oh. Your, right. Depending upon your your definition, that's like six to eight people. Yeah, so I, I, guess, I guess depending upon how much they eat, I mean, it, right? Yeah, really that's true. What like, what if someone ate a whole pizza by themselves? <laughs> no, 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 I can't on a good day. Yeah, uh, so that so I believe so. Our team, it's not very rigid like that. Like, there are some teams that are like 20 people, and some teams that are like five people. Uh, it like depends. I think it depends on the context of the organization and what 
and like also like some teams end up splitting right and also some teams sure. own many some teams own one service some teams own 10 services like it's all it's so like perfect. very different right well even that answer is incredible is great yeah. it tells you something about the structure i guess yeah. so let me ask you the more broad question here so if I'm somebody sitting in, you know, a Fortune 500 company, you know, who companies like yours are disrupting out of the market and they're completely intimidated by the Kubernetes learning curve, what, what, what are kind of the key things that they should know about moving forward that you've learned from this experience that you've had? Oh, yeah, and that's a great question. I, I mean, I, I totally I understand how they feel because Kubernetes is a really big space and like, it's very complicated and they have so many features. The biggest thing I've learned is like to not use all the features, just like, <laughs> like don't just turn on everything and run it. Like that's not a bad idea. Like things are like, cause like it makes your system way more complex. Right. And like not everything is being used exactly this, like in that combination. So you can't, you don't know how it's going to, your system is going to react. And now you're operating this complicated thing. So, so start small. Yeah. Start small and just like use a, like, think like do audit and like a, a requirements gathering of exactly what you needed to do and just turn on those things and then yeah and like yeah and leverage the community as much as you can like ask other people about like wh what they're using and how they architecture their kubernetes clusters because i think like the community is very welcoming and they want you to succeed so like i think leveraging the community and the knowledge there is very helpful and uh what is it yeah and like start yeah like i feel like if depend it, it was so dependent on like what like your business is and like what your requirements are because ours uh, our business is very real time so we have like a migration that's like very like incremental right so like that's i for my specific use case like it was really important that our rollout was incremental and we knew how to roll back as well like we making sure that like if kubernetes was like falling over we could shift that quickly like so uh so like yeah so that's kind of like what i learned um and lastly like yeah like it's a it's a big project it's not like for everyone i wouldn't recommend everyone to migrate to kubernetes that's not like because it's like it's it's like again like takes up a lot of resources takes it's a there is a big learning curve and we're gonna we're going through that cultural change of like here like you can't SSH to your box anymore. Like you have to use cube cuddle exec. Like like teaching your engineer how to Even use that is a big deal to some people, right? Yeah. What do you mean I gotta learn a new tool set when you know I've been using SSH for twenty five years or whatever? I mean Yeah, exactly. So oh. like is saying. there a good alternative though? Like, say you you're tired of running all these VMs in AWS and you're dealing with all that, you know, um, kind of unused capacity and yeah inefficient use of people's time on the staff is there another alternative is there another way to make things better or, or it's kind of kubernetes or no I, I mean like i feel like there i mean there's other orchestrators out there like you could use like mesosphere like i don't i don't know the other ones yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but also like i mean another approach we could have taken is like making our like this like creating ac2 instance faster like we could have went that approach because our before I, the biggest bottleneck was using salt and like salt was taking most of the time. And so like maybe you could run EC2 instance on a container and like bake images and like make it so that like that was faster. But, um, but honestly, like Kubernetes is very feature rich and like there's already a lot of infrastructure built already out there. And the, and mo most of the other mid-sized companies like us were moving towards it. So like, I feel like it was, a, it was like the least amount of work versus like us doing it all ourselves, you right. know?
So intimidating, complicated, but big reward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially since like the, the community is getting so big, and like more people are contributing to it, and it's also very flexible. So like you could make it do exactly what you wanted to do. But yeah, you're right. It's like it, it is a learning curve. It's a engineering culture change, and like, and you have to weigh those costs against what what the benefits can get you. All right, Pete. If you don't have any more questions, I'm going to ask my last one and well, wrap it up. I I got a couple more. If oh, you go ahead. More. Go ahead, man. If you'll forgive me. Um, so are you guys running this on, Lita, are you running this on EKS or are you doing something where you're rolling your own Kubernetes clusters? I believe you're rolling our own Kubernetes clusters. And are you doing that on-prem or are you still doing that on top of EC2? Uh, we're doing that on top of AWS EC2 instances. Okay. And just timeline. So how long did this take you to get from the idea of like, yeah, we've got to do this to we rolled out the first service? And then how long do you anticipate it's going to be from the time you got that first service to the, all of them are through this migration pipeline? That's a really hard. I feel like that's very hard because like, so we started initially uh, planning for Kubernetes last year and okay. we got our first services rolled over in in, in like June, July. And then okay. um, to get to 100% is a harder timeline. I don't know if I can speak to that because a lot of it is going to go on to the pro Now the migrate, we're deciding whether to. It's like, up to the individual yeah, teams. Yeah, it's up to the individual teams who then. You've like, got the structure in place and they get to choose when they do it. And yeah, you gotta, yeah. And you that's, a, give them that's a hard answer. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Pete. So mine is going to be uh, the question we, we used to open with and we close with now is how did you get into tech in the first place? Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I, I mean, like, so I actually was in the movie industry before. So I worked, I used, my dream was to, at the time when I was in college was to work at like, like a, uh, like a like an animation studio. So I worked for DreamWorks actually for four and a half years. Um, and like I, not in Burbank? No, it, it was in Redwood City, in the oh, Redwood okay. City office. And then they closed that's they closed that studio down. But then like when when like there was that downturn, uh, a lot of um, I saw like when the studio closed down, I was like, oh man, like this is really sucky. <laughs> I get, there's people who've been here for like 15 years getting let go, and they're like, and so like uh, I realized then like I need to be optimize for like being able to learn like the company's not going to take care of me because they can't, they don't have control over the economy so you, i have to optimize for like being able to learn new things yeah. and so that's how like during that phase i decided to do the hard thing of like leaving that industry and then going to somewhere new so i went to the tech industry like i i, I like ended up going to um i ended up taking like a year off to like like learning programming and like learning how to like uh learn and and then interviewed around tech companies and after like a lot of rejections I got an offer at Lyft somehow early on like very they were very small it was like I think I want to say like 60 engineers at the time and then like now we're like so many we're like Dang, yeah. you're going public next year. You go aren't you yeah you guys are going public in six months or something uh I can't talk about that unfortunately all right well that is what they say on CNBC um, so wait when you took this year off were you just Learning at home, like I'm gonna teach myself Python. So, or I'm gonna teach myself. You know. Actually, I ended up going to this awesome like um, program called Recur Center. It was called uh, Hacker School at the time, but uh, it it's like it's like a commune, like a programmer's commune. Like you go there for because you love programming and you just wanna learn programming for the sake of learning with others with and they're intrinsically motivated they're so classes you get to just learn what you want to like 
work and willing to work on what you want to work on and learn what you want to learn and in an environment that fosters like curiosity and asking really good questions and being nice to everyone so like when i was there i was like contributing to open source a lot so i contributed to the c python project i like learned a lot about functional programming because that's everyone ends up learning about functional programming at this place like because it's just like the concepts are really cool but they're not very not always practical for like you know big like company right um because the like, learning curve is quite hard and um and also main like maintaining a function i've never seen a like a fortune 500 company that's like on using only functional programs programming a system that's crazy so but like yeah it was just a great and it's ended up being a really beautiful community and we still keep in touch but that's ultimately does it still exist yeah you could i, I if you're if anyone's ever interested in like taking a break from like the industry and wants to go to and you just want to program for fun totally recommend what's it doing, called again uh recurse center recurse center yeah okay. used to be the hacker the hacker school yeah hacker used to call it school they kept getting uh, mistaken as a boot camp so they had to change their name to like something that's a little more vague and be like, and then the people ask a question of like, what is Recurse Center? Uh, versus like, oh, hacker school, you must be a boot camp. Like, right. no, we're not a boot camp. <laughs> we, we are uh, yeah. like a writer's retreat for programmers. <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you, that's the first one we've heard yeah. along those lines. Yes. Thank All you. right. Thank you so much. This was well, fun. Thank you for being on. We appreciate you sharing your story with us. Yeah. And um, we learned a lot. Pete, are you chirping in there? I am. I just said thanks, Lita. Thank you so much, Peter. It was nice meeting you virtually. You as well. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your week there. Thanks. All right. Bye, Pete. Bye. I'll talk to you later. Talk to you about half an hour.